Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And we are reporting from deep inside the bowels of Mardi Gras season. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Can you hear the parades rumbling around you? They've already started like blocking off parking and yeah. it's crazy. 90% of the people I work with were like, see ya at... 330. <laughs> yeah. My boss at work is charging uh 40 bucks for a parking spot for Endymion. <laughs> wow. That's fucking insane. Oh, that is wild. God. They blocked both sides of the public sidewalk near a public park by my job so that you have to either walk on the streetcar track and take your life into your own hands or walk 5 minutes around the block around huge buildings. That's to get why where we have go. sidewalks. Yeah. Like, how is that legal? It can't be. Well, they had this one little gate that like could open and shut. And I don't know if someone hit it with their bike or something, but it bent and like it will not move now. The one little passage bottleneck they Mm. left open is like completely not functional anymore. You should like, I could do this too. I'll go like real, real slow and I'll hit you at my car and then we could sue. Fuck yes. I love this plan. (laughs) And then we could open up a Swamp Flicks movie theater and we could just watch movies. Yes. I got earlier in the week. The owner of the company, he was like, take that old sign from last year down to marketing. They got to change it from 35 bucks to 40. <laughs> Inflation. Inflation is right. just insane, even with parking yeah. spots. Every spot's probably going to be full. No, I'm sure it will That's, be. Which is insane. But wow. James, we should stand by our house with a $35 sign. Sell jello Undercut. shots or something. Yeah. You can make a ton of money. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Well, because it's Mardi Gras, I actually don't know when this episode's going to come out. It could be before or after Fat Tuesday. Oh, it's definitely going to be after. Maybe. You're lying to yourself. <laughs> it depends how much free time I have in the next few mm-hmm. days. I'm currently teasing out a wig because uh, it is the return of Crew Divine this year for the first time since COVID. Very excited. Yeah. I am too. We've expanded in no way. We have the same membership <laughs> we had three years ago. <laughs> right. Same people. I'm trying to like find ways to elevate yeah, yeah. it a tiny bit. So yeah. like I made some inve- like a few investments in my costume where I bought like some interesting padding. So I'm gonna see how that Ooh. works. Right. And I invested in this like Playtex bra with like a triple E cup or something like that. So I can like put socks in it. And have more of a divine bust. Amazing. And we're going to bring a Bluetooth speaker. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Blair Divine's disco hits as we waddle as, down the yeah, street. Yeah, as much as we can. I do see a beautiful pair of rubber breasts those sitting over tits. by the... <laughs> those are Brandon's tits. And honestly, every time I put those tits on, I'm like, they should be twice as big as they are. <laughs> this is not big enough. Yeah, but, I mean, they're, they're big, but yeah, like, we got to keep our backs in mind. You're going to pull it back out. I That's will... True suffer for fashion if i could <laughs> afford bigger tits i would buy them <laughs> like nina bobina brown tits. oh i want that yeah so bad yeah <laughs> they're in your shopping cart waiting for the day <laughs> so if you are in the quarter of mardi gras day and you see five people walking around in divine outfits that's probably us you can come say hello and if you're hearing this after mardi gras i'm very tired do not say hello to me <laughs> leave <laughs> me alone <laughs> Well, I know Brittany and I watched a couple Divine movies the other day to get prepared for this season. Yeah, and like a really good documentary special featurette on um, Pink Flamingos that was like very, very entertaining. Yeah, the new Criterion disc had this documentary from 1998 called Divine Trash. Yes. I thought the most interesting part was like the contextualization of underground filmmaking around the time John Waters started. So yeah. 
he listed a bunch of movies that he was going to see. So like Russ Meyer and Andy Warhol and um, Herschel Gordon Lewis and like just kind of these underground filmmakers at the time and sort of just contextualizing his work in a way that um, was fun to like write down a bunch of titles. Stuff yeah, we both out. had like our letterbox down. We're just like, watch list, watch list, watch list. Yeah. Like so <laughs> many cool things like I never heard of got brought up. Um, that's totally in that alley of disgusting ass John Waters movie. So I'm very excited. And then the next day I found a Herschel Gordon Lewis movie at the Goodwill. Uh, oh my like, God. <gasps> divine inspiration. Yeah. Divine out magic. Out there in the world. <laughs> what else have you been watching lately? I, for Valentine's Day, I watched the movie Attachment. It's on Shudder right now. It came out last oh, year. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've it's, heard of it. It's very good. Mm-hmm. So it is directed by Gabriel Beer um, Gieselson. Like, I don't know how to pronounce it. G-I-S-L-A-S-O-N. Gieselson? Gieselson? Well, now I prefer Gieselson. Now that you've <laughs> Gieselson! <laughs> <laughs> Done. Mr. Gieselson. <laughs> it's a, Your it's... order is ready. <laughs> Sizzling Do you for want Gieselson? extra barbecue sauce with that? Um... <laughs> So this is um, their directorial debut, and this is the only thing I could find this person has ever done, like not even a short, a music video. This is really it, and it's very good. It is this like folk horror that's also like a religious horror, queer horror, with a little Jewish, well, a lot of Jewish mythology in it. It's very cool. And it's about um, this woman named Maya. She's a, a Danish actress who's a little old, not old, old, but like probably like late 40s and her career is kind of done and she befriends a uh, Jew, a young Jewish girl who's from London and they like start to become like romantically involved. And a huge, huge part of this movie is just like focusing on like slowly kind of watching their relationship form and grow and blossom. And the whole time I'm like, I know this is a horror movie, so I know some weird shit's going to happen. So like that kind of sits in the back of your head as all this romance is going on. It's a very weird but interesting feeling. So the a young Jewish woman named Leah, she um, has a seizure and has to go back home after she has a, this like seizure episode. Maya goes with her. They both go back to London and live with her Orthodox Jewish mother and you know you start to sort of get some weird vibes coming from the mother where it kind of has you guessing for a second like is there something wrong with leah why is her mother so weird and why is all this weird stuff happening or is her mother like doesn't doesn't want this relationship to happen is she causing this and it sort of goes into a little bit of like exorcist territory there's some um possession involved with it but it's also like possession that in, that is embedded in um, Jewish mythology, which is kind of cool. Oh, like the Dybbuk? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah cool. Where it's like not a ghost, but that thing that inhabits you. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It was good. Hmm. It wasn't like, oh my God, I'm freaking yeah. out. It's great. It was good. And it was a great like horror Valentine's Day watch because it is pretty romantic and there there is like some heart to it, but it's a little spooky, but not too spooky. It's just kind of like. It felt more dramatic. Like, you know when you watch horror movies and it's just, like, sad because the situation, like, even though it's scary, it's just kind of horrible? Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. 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 This movie has been on my radar. I think the pitch that I saw was, like, about being a U-Haul lesbian and then also the incorporation of 
Jewish practice. And that was very exciting to me. So your recommendation means the world to me. Oh, my God. I will watch this. I will watch this movie. Um, you're welcome. And, but it sounds like you already were on this yeah. more than I was. No, but I was like, yeah, it, it I was, was good. I was because I like heard it. some like conflicting thing. I don't know. So I, I, uh-huh. it just didn't come into my like. I need to watch this. Yeah. So you are the deciding force. I think like based on like your taste and I think you'd appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Cool. Um. Yeah. Well, uh, Brandon, what have you been watching? <laughs> Well, I guess I should apologize to everyone in this room and thank you all for coming back after I made you all watch gay pornography the last time you came over. Oh, that was I love the <laughs> gay yeah. Pornography. I brought some home with me. <laughs> great, great, great. It was like a two minute scene. Yeah, yeah. I should do a tasteful selection. Yeah, you yeah. stopped it when the anal sex started. Yeah, you can watch that in your own time. Exactly. <laughs> I guess this is kind of on my mind because um, there's a lot of like no sex scene discourse on like Twitter this yeah. week. Where, like people are kind of saying I did not consent to watch sex scenes in this movie and it's being forced upon me. Oh, uh, hmm. I didn't know about A lot this. of prudishness among viewers out there this week. And to counteract that, I've been watching a lot of classic pornography mm. <laughs> that uh, I recently purchased from Vinegar Syndrome. They usually have these sales on Black Friday, I bought a couple discs. They had another one on Valentine's Day. Nice. Like you can get their stuff fifty percent off. Sometimes. Yeah, their shit is awesome. They're yeah. sort of like Criterion Collection and then Vinegar Syndrome are like the two sites I'm always watching for yeah. movie sales. The two I bought were both you know golden age pornos from the seventies. Uh, one was called Sex World, which you may guess is a spoof of Westworld, um, <laughs> a movie I have not seen, but I've now seen the porn parody. It's set at this luxury resort where um, rich people take a bus, <laughs> a bus to the luxury resort, um, and they're interviewed by the staff, who are all these experts, uh, I guess sexperts, in these like um. white lab coats are kind of mill around. And, like, <laughs> Nothing sexier than a white lab coat. <laughs> it makes them look smart and important, yeah. but literally they're just pushing these like light up buttons on the switchboard to nothing. <laughs> Scholars. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and what they can do is they can simulate your any sexual fantasy. Like they keep throwing stuff out there. Like you want to do incest. You want to do water sports. You want to have sex with yourself. We can simulate this. And then it's a straight porn. So like what actually happens is kind of the most milk toast. Like, <laughs> you know, there's like some taboos, like for the seventies, there's a little like interracial taboo stuff they're playing with. And there's a little like bisexuality. I don't know. It's like not yeah. that exciting. Like, your wildest dreams are like pretty right. mild, I think. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a sci-fi film, but like beyond a few flashing lights and stuff, there's really nothing much to it. But it looks fucking gorgeous, especially for a porn. Like, it's got that kind of jalo cross lighting and like uh, cool. really complicated wallpaper and stuff. You know, mm. like it's just like beautiful wallpaper. set design. And yeah, some of the sex is kind of hot. There's like a lady who is addicted to phone sex, but always feels ashamed after her like post nut clarity you know (laughs) and uh they help her out uh all of the uh (laughs) all of the like customers have these like very um common like straight marriage issues Mm -hmm. and then the sexperts help them overcome them you know the, the whole thing about like porno chic was that porn films were getting reviewed in variety and in in like mainstream publications so People were actually going into the city on dates and like watching a porn film, like as if they were just watching a, a regular mainstream movie. And this one feels very much geared towards that. It's like, 
you, you get kind of hot and bothered with your date, but also on the way back to bed, you can kind of like chat about the like different marital problems that were solved during the movie, you know, like almost like there's like discussion cards in the lobby. I don't know. It was pretty good. Cool. And it has a great disco theme song, which uh, mentions the bus several times. <laughs> a very important part <laughs> the of pleasure it. Bus. Awesome. Um, and also I made y'all watch a small snippet of Bijou, which um, is considered by a lot of people to be the greatest gay porno of all time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I like Pink Narcissus a little more. Uh, but it, maybe it's the best gay hardcore porno. But in that one, there's a construction worker who witnesses a woman get hit by a car. And he snatches her purse and takes it back to his bedroom in this like shitty New York City apartment. And he's like jerking off on the shower, um, trying not to think about this car accident he just watched. And eventually he like gives in and looks in her purse and finds this invitation to a theater called Bijou. He goes there. And it turns out to be this like phantasmagorical otherworld. He just sort of falls down the rabbit hole. And then he's just in this like non-existent black void where just these weird objects start appearing. And he's wandering around like kind of in awe and his giant dicks hanging out. And I don't know. (laughs) It's just like five or 10 minutes of just him going, what? As he like looks at different things, and it's beautiful. Uh-huh. There's a um, lady from Shanghai mirrorish yeah. scene, which mm-hmm. is awesome. And all of this is filmed in Wakefield Pool's apartment. the The director has an apartment in New York City where they just blacked out the walls and ceilings with like black felt, and it looks like a you know infinite studio space. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It really does look beautiful. And Pink Narcissus was filmed the same way in a New York City apartment, and I think that one. I think what I like more about it is that like. That sequence that I showed y'all, that's like all of Pink Narcissus. And instead of it being so sex focused and so dark, it's more like bright technicolor, glittery, like glam kind of set design. And then another reason that uh, I like Bijou slightly less is the last 30 minutes of it is just a nonstop orgy. And, uh, you know, if you're not jerking off to that after about 10, 15 minutes, you're like, okay, I've seen what it looks like when (laughs) (laughs) that goes into that. You know, I kind of get it. But... uh, (laughs) We're all done here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like there's like a 10, 15 minute stretch where I was like, I get it. I get why this is like great art. And then like towards the last 30 minutes, I'm like, I could have stopped this five minutes ago and I would have gotten everything I wanted out of it. Yeah. You know? I've been watching a lot of smut because I feel like the world's getting more prudish. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the long and short so of it. So you have to like amp up the smut to balance yeah. it out. I've seen that conversation playing out online. Yeah. And very much people very much in different camps of like... The world is going to shit because there's too much sex. And then, like, why can't we have sex in the movies anymore? I don't know. It's like people feeling very strongly that the world is a way that they don't want it to be. I personally am a proponent of smut and sex scenes. Uh, They make me very happy. Yeah. It's part of the human experience. Yeah. Right. I mean, I don't love the MPAA, but they do have like warnings for a reason yeah. like this is going to be in this movie you know and every time they give an nc-17 warning to a movie and thus the studio edits out alexander skarsgård's right. dick then i go home and buy more porn right <laughs> <laughs> that's how my collection is just getting you know, smutted up they've taken from me <laughs> i also just this is not really related but i just think water sports is a super funny name oh, for what that is yeah. it's like makes me think of like strong men playing water polo and then i mean not you can't not do both of those things <laughs> that's the true we can very often probably you are doing one unconsciously right mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, what have you been watching? <laughs> so um, I haven't been watching any new movies, but I did see a film that I know has been talked about before on the podcast, and that's The Red Shoes. It's a, a Pressburger and Powell film from 1948. And this has been on my watch list for like two years. I left this movie at your house for yeah. like three years. <laughs> <laughs> did not, I was not watched. And then I finally like... I think James went to go watch the Super Bowl. I was like, well, I have multiple hours. I'm going to watch a long movie. And so I finally watched it, and it was just amazing. I love this film. It has um, Moira Shearer as Victoria Page. She's an aspiring ballerina. Marius Goring as Julian Castor. He's an aspiring conductor. And then um, Adolf Wolbrook as Boris... Uh, Lermontov, who is this like director of this ballet company, and he kind of brings them both together f- to create a production of The Red Shoes, which is based on the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. And then the two aspiring artists fall in love, and Lermontov gets really angry because he is obsessed with uh, Victoria Page, and uh, you know, tragedy ensues. Um, it's just gorgeous. It was funny that I watched this with all of the movies that we're watching today, which feature Technicolor to brilliant display. Uh, just gorgeous red all over the place, gorgeous settings. And the ballet scene in the middle, they they do a production of the Red Shoes Ballet, and it's just this like absolutely transcendent, time melting production and i just totally like floated out of my body during the whole thing it's not unlike the sequence in bijou where the guy goes to bijou (laughs) (laughs) companion films i think so but yeah i just i just really love this film and you know i know that i think there was a podcast episode dedicated to it it was the we the did premiere. like a ballet horror episode yeah. a long time ago. Yeah. And just if you haven't watched it, then watch it. And then I also watched maybe two weeks ago, I watched another Pressburger and Powell film from 1946 called uh, Matter of Life and Death. Ooh. And I really like that one, too. Uh, Red Shoes is more kind of my bag. But the story of Matter and Life and Death is really interesting. There is this pilot who is shot down in the war. And as his plane is falling, he's talking to this... Uh, American radio operator. He's a Brit, and she's if she's American, and they like form this connection. And then he jumps out of his plane, and he survives. And he meets up with this radio operator, and they fall in love. And then the accountants in heaven, like that, account for all of the people that are supposed to come up. Realize that they missed him because it was so foggy over England. They just didn't see him falling. So they come, I think it's 72 hours later, to collect him, basically. And then he makes this case that it was heaven's mistake. So he shouldn't have to die because now he's fallen in love. And he says, basically, I was ready to die when I was up in the plane. But now, because of your mistake, I fall in love with this woman. Um, so I should be allowed to live. And he has to kind of like try his case in heaven, which is just a really fun idea. Um, the alternate title for this film is Stairway to Heaven. And they have this really, really cool have uh, like stairway set piece. It's like an escalator. Ooh, I think it's an escalator. But it was very expensive and like really impressive. And 
the demarcation between earth and heaven is really interesting. Like heaven is this very black and white, like modernist architecture. And then the earth is very like beautiful, technicolor, lush, organic. So that was super enjoyable. Um, I'm trying to get into more of their films, but uh, yeah, the little selection. I should too, because Red Shoes is like one of my all-time it's favorite films. It's such a good yeah. movie. It's amazing. Yeah, uh, this sounds great. I want to yeah. see the one about the nuns too. I don't know if it's like Black Narcissus or something like that, but like... Yeah! Oh, yeah. Is that them too? I think so. Ugh, man. I'm a movie fool. So <laughs> many films I haven't seen. Me neither. I haven't seen them. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's watch it. It's too many. Too many. Well, James, what have you been watching? Well, the, the movie I wanted to talk about was... Uh, a 1982 independent film called Chan is Missing, which I, I really loved. It's kind of set up as a noir. These two Chinese Americans who are living in Chinatown in San Francisco, their business partner, they were going to open a cabbie business. He runs off with their money, just goes missing. And so the rest of the film is kind of, it's all shot in black and white and it's very much that like Richard Linkletter them just like almost feels like a documentary just going around and talking to different people like in Chinatown. It's kind of like slacker and just random conversations about Chinese American politics and identity. And you get like a really authentic sense of what it's the experience of a Chinese immigrant in America. And it's funny and it's very bittersweet and, Really, really good stuff. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But after hearing Brandon's conversation <laughs> about gay pornography and pornography in general, I think the more apt movie <laughs> to talk about would be Carvaggio. Oh, I like that movie. Which is a Derek Jarman uh, director I just started getting into. Uh, they release a bunch of his stuff on Criterion. Have you seen Jubilee yet? I have not. That's my favorite. I'm working through his stuff. Yeah. I was just drawn to this picture because... I love Caravaggio as a painter. He's like this Italian painter from like the 17th century does really like dramatic Baroque using very extreme light. But the film is really strange. It's like not biographical. It's picking at certain parts of his biography, but I don't know, sort of being playful with it. And it also made me think about Blonde, which we're going to get into Later, I have questions about how far we we're allowed to get into blonde. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I don't want to. That's get, it. No, and that's the, I didn't want to get too much into blonde because I feel like it's going to take away from our overall discussion. I want to talk about it somewhat, but I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, but this I'm, this yeah. movie and the idea of like biographical films that it's more about catching a vibe than about like this happened and this happened like. We're talking about with Aline, like the Wikipedia yeah. kind of biography. Caravaggio is very sensual. And like the parts of it that I loved were the recreations of his paintings and the way it's shot is just mimicking the actual figures that, you know. Is the word chiaroscuro or something like that? Yes. It's like a chiaroscuro. Yeah. So I started out really confident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's yeah. like a um, it's like a source of light thing. So like, it, yeah. really stark photography in the right. movie trying to replicate like that. high contrast. Yeah, I think so. the The narrative of the film didn't quite work for me, but just as like an overall vibe of like, and it's very homoerotic. Like, 
there's not a, a lot of sex, but it's a lot of sweaty men's bodies. Yeah, young boys with older men with priests with Whoa. and everyone's sweaty and shirts off and they're <laughs> dirty and they're all posing for this guy and he's mad and um, you know, and there's a lot of violence too cuz you know, I I read his biography afterwards and I was like, "Oh yeah, he was like kind of an angry dude that did mm-hmm. murder somebody and he definitely was gay yeah. or bisexual." So it's not trying to hit the beats of his life because again, another weird thing in the movie that I loved is like the random technology that pops up. Like (laughs) there's a Bishop that's like playing on an electronic calculator (laughs) and there's like typewriters and there's someone working on like a motorcycle and there's neon lights and like none of that was around obviously in the 17th century, but it just lends itself to like kind of this timeless quality that I thought was very interesting. So some really like bold artistic choices, even if the movie didn't quite hit it out the park for me, but I thought it was really interesting. I think I like Derek Jarman stuff the same way you like Lynch, where it's like, I don't think the narrative is ever the main thing he's interested in. Yeah, totally. It's a vibe. Yeah. Uh, there's this movie that he did called The Garden that's just like a series of tableaus that are like completely nonsensical, but they're just so odd. And that one's like really about the AIDS crisis in a really morbid way. So it's having a lot of like flippant punk fun. And then it goes into like deep mourning and sadness as well. Like um, I think Tilda Swinton is in that one. She's in a lot lot of his movies. Well, and this movie was her first on-screen role ever. And uh, Sam Bean is in it as well, I think, in one of his first roles. And they're just sweaty and hot and <laughs> like longing. I mean, what for more each can other, you ask for? Yeah, I, I thought it was really, really interesting. Anyway, you want to try to make a segue? I already tried with the blonde. <laughs> well, there is a lot of stark black and white photography in Andrew Dominic's <laughs> film Blonde. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, I want Hannah to answer this question. How much are we allowed to talk about blonde? We, I, I am not the arbiter of the it, blonde conversation. I, I know that I'm the only one that actually liked. I like blonde the most out of anyone. I feel Whoa. like, yeah. And I think it's the worst movie of last year, give or take the whale. And it's really bad for me. It was the impetus for me picking yes. this topic. Yeah, and it also like informed how I viewed each of her performances in here. Like, oh, in in some way, it was in the back of my head. I wrote down how each of these movies were introduced in Blonde in a way that made me hate Blonde more and more every time it came. Yeah, up. <laughs> so that like I feel like I'm totally in the middle of you two because my knowledge of Marilyn Monroe. Beyond what everybody absorbs in popular culture was very limited before watching Blonde. And so you said Blonde informed your viewing of all of the movies afterwards. Like that was in the back of my back of your head. Well, it just like put a level of like sadness on everything that she's ever done. So I think that artifact of Blonde and the impression that it it can leave on Marilyn Monroe's work made me appreciate Blonde less as I was watching those films. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because he presents it as it's so it's based on the Joyce Carol Oates novel which she presents as not a biopic 
or not a biographical work. This is her interpretation of Marilyn Monroe's life and kind of like elevating it to mythological status. So if you are creating a film that you acknowledge is not a biopic, but you tie it so closely with this person that you can't help but project the feelings that he elicited onto the films. Like, I feel like that is doing it a disservice to Marilyn Monroe and her work. And I feel like, I, I mean, I feel like that was intentional probably with, I mean, it's just impossible not to do that when he shows this like, depth of sadness and like emotional volatility even if part of that is like a part of her real life you know like my opinion of blonde changed as i was watching these films but i still don't hate blonde plenty more blonde thoughts to come Very soon. Very soon. <laughs> imminent, imminent blonde thoughts. And then hopefully we can move on to just talking about Marilyn Monroe, yes. who is amazing. Yes. And I, I think everyone in here came out enjoying Marilyn Monroe as a screen presence, right? No one was like, God, I got to watch another fucking Marilyn Monroe movie. No, I like. I think I came out of this like a super big Marilyn Monroe fan. Yes. Like, yes. I never got into like the idolizing like Marilyn Monroe fad, I guess. And like, so I have a, f- a friend who was like just like disturbingly obsessed with her, but in a good way. Um, and who was like infatuated with Marilyn Monroe. And she passed away last year from a drug overdose, which oh. was so bizarre because that's how Marilyn died. So I was like, yeah, I'm like, this is this will be interesting. And like, as I watched the movies, I was like, oh, I totally get it. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. I understand like her obsession and her idolization of her. And it was like, I don't know, I have like more of an appreciation for um, sort of uh, Marilyn's fandom and her as an actress like she's plays ditzy blonde in a really like empowering way but she's also like really good at like serious roles like she was a serious actress that's what i was missing is i knew that she studied like in like a serious acting school she had like method yeah. acting type stuff and like yeah i knew that but i hadn't seen her in dramatic roles i'd only yeah. seen her comedies where she plays like the ditzy blonde who's not actually ditzy she just right. pretends to be like i had seen her do that so many times that like I even came out a bigger fan of this, like already enjoying her work because I got to see the the noirs that we talked about mm-hmm. as well. So yeah. and, and this crop of films, I feel like captures kind of every aspect of what makes her a good actress. Yeah. And you can see them all referenced in Andrew Dominic's film Blonde on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. Don't you know that a man being rich is like a girl being pretty? You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty. But my goodness, doesn't it help? And if you had a daughter, wouldn't you rather she didn't marry a poor man? But I was... You'd want her to have the most wonderful things in the world and to be very happy. Oh, why is it wrong for me to want those things? Well, I concede that... Say, they told me you were stupid. You don't sound stupid to me. I can be smart when it's important. But most men don't like it. So, I grew up in a very non feminine household i would say we were like if you were categorizing teenage girls we were like the wolf girls so i had like this opposition to femininity almost and i was like actively not interested in marilyn monroe and then i feel like the general 
discourse around her was she's not good at singing she's not good at acting like she's a hot blonde and that's it like she's a pure icon so james and i watched blonde which was directed by andrew dominic it stars anna de armas as norma jean it is like we said before based on the joyce carol oates novel it is not intended to be a moment-for-moment biopic. A lot of the moments in Blonde are taken from Marilyn's life, and a lot of them are just kind of, like, basically psychic impressions of what her experience might have been. So I was expecting to really hate this movie. I did not hate it. I think it's visually, like, masterfully crafted it's it's absolutely gorgeous it does have some really interesting dreamish moments there's this scene where she's you know the infamous scene from the seven year itch she's standing over the grate and it's blowing her skirt up and then you see this sea of men kind of ogling her so there are these really interesting kind of like metaphorical um visual moments It is a slog of abuse and hardship, but it really made me interested in Marilyn's life in a way that other biopics haven't. Like there was that uh, Michelle Williams film, I think like My Weekend with Marilyn or something with Eddie Redmayne. So I just kind of became more interested in her as a person and, you know, what her art was and what she did. So that is why I decided to pick the Marilyn Monroe topic. And I feel like I've come out of this just absolutely loving her. And I realized that I was completely dismissing her. And I had no idea what it was about her that made her so enigmatic when I was a teenager. Like, she's just funny She's passionate. She's beautiful. I mean, obviously she's beautiful, but like more than that, she's so expressive and interesting. And I think it's a shame that so much of her mythology is just surrounded on these like one or two photos of her looking like a bombshell. I just found Blonde so shallow. Like the whole thing about her is, like you said, so much of it is about the image, and I guess the movie's about that. Yeah. But, like, why are we bringing up the image again if you're just going to say there's nothing there? There's just nothing beyond the image in the movie to the point where it's like, what we should be doing if we're going to dig Marilyn Monroe out of her grave at this point is talking about how talented and, like, yeah. how much depth there is there that has not been yeah. discussed before. Like, just to bring her up again to do that to her a second time is just such a fucking waste of time and energy and talent. And like, I don't know. I think a lot of the things you're saying that you like about her now, the movie doesn't really get across. And like, there's nothing about her that you can't learn better from like watching her work than you can learn watching this film. Yeah. So I disagree wholeheartedly. (laughs) I feel like a lot of the criticism and a lot of the backlash and a lot of the defense of it is like, it's, not really about Marilyn Monroe. Like the central image in this movie that really blew me away was she's crying in front of a mirror and she like has to turn it on. Like she's talking herself up. Like 
It's almost like she's doing a seance for the like Marilyn Monroe to inhabit her. Right. It's like bringing up this ghost, this mythology like that has been created for you. So on one level, like if you're going into it just for a Marilyn Monroe biopic, well, you're going to hate it. If you're going into it and you think it's just about like how awful her life was and how we're not appreciating her talents and why do we keep bringing her up and back from the dead, you're going to hate it. But I saw it as like the nightmare of a mythology that has been created that society cannot let go of. And so you're haunted by the image of what people perceive you as. I feel like that's what the movie captured. And when I'm watching her in all these roles where, you know, people have projected she is the blonde bimbo, you know, with the heart of gold. And she has to like play that role up in the media, has to play it up in her films, even though she is like talented and smart. That is a nightmare. And so the last like hour of the film goes full into like surreal nightmare territory. So it is about her, but not really. It's about like American mythology and how we prop these people up and project images onto them and then they can't escape. That to me is like the power of the film. But it's continue. It's like perpetuating that instead of criticizing it. It's like continuing the abuse. And I think that's where you're going to fall. Either you're going to fall, say like you keep bringing her up from the dead and you keep doing this to her. And I say like, that is true, but that's also the point that like we as a culture, like we have an Elvis movie that just can't like we'll have a Prince movie soon. We'll have a Britney Spears. movie. Like we keep bringing up these icons, projecting our ideals onto them. And then we keep bringing them back from the dead. And it's like a nightmare that she can't be put to rest and she never will be. And I think that's like the horror that the film is trying to capture. So when we're watching her get raped and beaten for three hours, how is that helping? Or like, what is that adding to her mythology? It's just painful to watch. And for what? I don't have an answer to that. I don't have an answer to the first like 15 minutes of the film. I could see your point, but I do think the like, again, like I was saying, the last hour where it goes full surreal, almost Lynchian horror nightmare is like, you know, she's looking out into the crowd and men's faces are morphing. And like, there's some really gnarly, surreal shit. And like when she's getting off the plane and she goes into another plane, it's like very abstract. That was some of the most thrilling filmmaking I've saw all of last year, the last hour of Blonde. And I think it is getting at what I was saying earlier. I don't, fault anyone for hating yeah and thinking it's a slog for the beginning but holy shit to me it like really gets at something deeper at the end so i'm gonna have a thing that i enjoyed about it and a th- and a thing <laughs> that and i just love divisive movies where everyone is like <laughs> right. feels strongly and a, a one thing way or the other. that it's my perspective changed after I watched this film, which is the film that I chose to watch for the podcast. Oh, please dig yeah. out of the hole. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that was the most interesting to me is the dissociation that you experience when so much of your identity is wrapped up in like a public figure that is 
separated from yourself. And I felt like that was part of what the film was trying to do. Like she was so reliant on what like Marilyn Monroe would need in order to survive, like keep making films as opposed to like, I don't know, being a housewife and having children. Like Norma Jean was kind of in service to the ghost of Marilyn Monroe and men would enact abuse upon Marilyn Monroe, but it was impacting Norma Jean, the human being. And then eventually she was so wrapped up in this identity that she had to depend upon it. And that was like the possession scene where she's sitting in front of the mirror, like asking Marilyn to appear. It's like, that's when she has had to give herself over to this ghost, basically. So there is a moment of dissociation that I interpreted totally differently after watching Gentlemen Prefer Blondes because she's sitting in a movie theater and she watches the rendition of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend from that film. And she's like very beautiful and like surrounded by men and... Norma Jean is sitting in the theater saying like, that's not me, that's not me. And the setting for that musical number is like, it's like this bright red backdrop. So everybody in the theater is like flushed with red. So to me, that was like, she's not associating herself with this like sex pot that's on the screen, basically. And she's having like a dissociative episode. So then I watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and there is so much more of her that's represented in that film than that one scene. Like, that scene is her character doing a performance for other people. Whereas, like, her Lorelai Lee in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is, like, very funny and... I don't know. She She's a riot. She's, like, doing these very comical scenes with, with like, this little boy who's, uh, like, very precocious. <laughs> yeah. And, like, her... Uh, so there's so much more of her in that movie that is worth celebrating. But Blonde distills that performance to that one scene where she's, like... I mean, I think, arguably, that's her most, like, sex pot moment. Because that's what the culture has distilled her That's such down bullshit, to. though, because the work is there, and she has depth, and it's on the screen, and this movie is removing the depth and making her shallower than she was. It's removing her humanity and her agency and reducing right. her to something we've that's done, just not true. We've done that. No, we haven't. We watch well, we, these we, movies and we see that she's great. <laughs> yes, and this we, movie's like, we actually, down, she didn't know what she was doing. We was sat down like and watched Wandering them. through life in a daze. And it's We bullshit. sat down and watched them. Culture at large, like... I do think has distilled what Marilyn. What are you and, talking about? They play some like it hot like every week on like TCM and at the Britannia and like every fucking where I don't know. I feel like if you were to <laughs> poll random, like what are Marilyn Monroe's most iconic? It's like Diamonds Are Gold, Best Friend, and that um, scene where her skirt goes up. So yeah, we watch a lot of movies and we care about movies and we went and we watched these, but like I hadn't seen a Marilyn Monroe movie before this podcast i don't think a lot of people have gone back and watched movies from That's 70 so depressing. years no it's depressing <laughs> but it's right, fucking though. it's like, true like people just know like clips from like pop culture moments ask a teenager in like 2023 hey marilyn monroe give me the top hits 
it's gonna be that. It ain't gonna be like, oh, gentlemen prefer blonde. She was so funny in that and that line she had where she said that in that scene with the kid. Like, yeah, there's nuance to so it. But what is the point of putting in the effort to reduce her to something she's not instead of advocating for the good work that she did? It's not again. It's not about her. It's really indicting the way us as culture and viewers like take real human people, turn them into icons and erase all of their humanity. And it's a fucking nightmare for that person. That's what it's about. It's not about Marilyn Monroe. Okay. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like commit to what I'm actually saying and we're going to move on from Blonde. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. okay. And we're going to do what I, I mean, want like, to this, do. This could be its own about how great episode. Marilyn Monroe okay. is. Sure. Now yeah, we're yeah. going to talk about how great Marilyn Monroe is. And we're going to start <laughs> with uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was directed in 1953 by Howard Hawks. So Marilyn is Lorelai Lee, and she has a showgirl partner, um, Dorothy Shaw, who's played by Jane Russell. And Jane Russell was a sex symbol of the 40s and the 50s. Uh-huh. She got paid like $200,000 for this film, and Marilyn was paid like $500 a week, which yeah. is such a shame. So there are these two women. They perform this act together, and they are taking a trip to Paris to perform. They're on a boat. Uh, Lorelai Lee is... Uh, set to be engaged to a wealthy man, Gus Esmond, played by Tommy Noonan. And his father is very suspicious of Lorelai. She's like, she's very interested in money. That's a huge recurring gag throughout the film. Um, So he's, her fiance's father has hired this private investigator named Ernie Malone to kind of spy on her and take incriminating photos. So the film basically follows this pair of showgirls. They realize uh, what this guy is up to, and they're like dealing with the consequences of Lorelai meeting this diamond magnate and (laughs) trying to get a tiara out of him. And, you know, it's the situation escalates over time i thought this movie was beautiful it was so funny marilyn monroe one thing i really love about her comedic acting is how expressive her face is like she i mean she's beautiful but she has these like really interesting like little pouty expressions that are like really really evocative And there are some, like, beautiful music numbers, even besides Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. I mean, this this movie is just a hoot, basically. Um, And I think it's it's a pretty straightforward, like, examination of women's love for, like, dudes that are rich and dudes that are hot. Like, her counterpart, Dorothy Shaw, is just really into big, muscly men. And there's this Olympic... Uh, relay team on the boat and she has this musical number it's where she's just favorite musical yeah, number she's just like this whole movie like well basically <laughs> what she's saying is will anybody fuck me like please 
She wants to bang that Olympic yeah. team so bad. She, and I love yeah, it. just like squeezing their muscles. And they have like those nude colored shorts yeah. with just a thin black line. So it looks like they're all naked. Oh, delicious. It's wild. In general, I don't think there are that many great songs in this movie. <laughs> like, I think most of the music's kind of forgettable. Like, I yeah. don't even think Diamonds are Girl's Best Friend. I, I disagree love with anything you're about to say. <laughs> it did not. Oh stick my god! I'm rewatching that myself it. every day. Like, yeah. since I watched this, that scene was also directed by the choreographer. It wasn't directed yeah. by Howard Hawks. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. It's pop art. Too. Scenes, yeah. yeah. Oh my god! Beautiful. And those the women. By there are these women. So there's. It's cut into like. I don't know, like three parts. And the first part, she's just surrounded by these men in tuxedos. And then the second verse, she's surrounded by these. She's like speaking to these little girls in pink dresses. Yeah. And they have these like fishnet stockings oh, over their so heads. Freaking it's cool. so freaking cool. It's so cool. And then there's yeah. the chandelier made of like BDSM dancers that yeah. are like in this like Buzz yes, Berkeley like, it configuration. Yeah. It's so cool. Gorgeous. It's a, it's a visual feast. But there's only like two great songs in the movie. And mm-hmm. it's the Olympic ogling and it's the diamonds are a girl's best yeah. friend dance number and like that's their two personalities is sex yeah. and money yeah and like <laughs> all the other songs are just kind of like filler to me and like, yeah. that's the one thing about the movie i don't think is like they don't perfect. have as yeah. many songs though like there's like a good bit where it feels like an hour passes before a song hits the screen there's like the like intro is like we're just song. two girls from arkansas or whatever the fuck yeah from little rock, little little rock. rock. Little yeah. rock. there's like some like little tidbits here or there. yeah you know what fine. so there's this song it's the second song and it's when they're about to leave and it starts with dorothy shaw singing to all of these men like i'll see you by and by and then it cuts to marilyn with her like fiance to be and she sings the song to him and it's this like really intimate beautiful moment so i didn't care for that song but then it turned into something that i really loved yeah which is i don't know i just feel like marilyn monroe just does that even when the songs don't hit the movie's still enjoyable to watch like it's just like i won't remember the tune like i won't be humming it to myself but but they were all so much fun yeah and me and james talked about this a little bit um but one thing that was really wonderful is the relationship between the two women because they're just like supporting each other. They're like talking a little bit of shit, just like, uh, you know, she's she's all about the money and she, uh-huh. you know, she always makes horrible decisions because she doesn't care about money. But like they're so defensive of each other and they never, ever backstab each other. I yeah. feel like that's such a common it's trope. It's really sisterly, like the yeah. relationship they have. And yeah, like... I did not think that this movie was going to be about, like, a dynamic duo of women, like, just two main characters, and I was kind of surprised. Like, for some reason, yeah. looking at the cover, it's like, gentlemen prefer blondes, and it's a blonde and a brunette. I'm like, are they fighting? That's how it's marketed, too. I don't know. I thought their relationship... I saw this is kind of my, like, big brain thought. <laughs> Galaxy brain m- corner. Galaxy <laughs> brain, that, yeah. <laughs> like, James Russell, to me, is like... The 40s, like we watched a lot of noirs for our last episode and kind of that noirish, like a lot of the femme fatales in the 40s tend to have the brunette hair mm-hmm. and, and sharp more facial features, yes. sharp facial features and more like yeah. authoritative about what they want and what they need. And when I think about Marilyn Monroe, I think about the 50s, like the doting housewife who wants to please her man and like... That's totally what their two characters are representing here. It's like the shift 
from the 40s to the 50s. Again, though, there's more depth to her character than that, which is like, that's what she's selling to the men. But she constantly keeps reminding everyone that she's much smarter than yeah. what she's saying and doing. But that that is also in a meta way, like kind of what Marilyn was about. Like she knew what her image yeah, was, right. but behind the scenes, she was like, yeah, I'm just playing a character. This is the only character I've ever seen her play before this episode is like yeah. someone who pretends to be kind of dumb mm-hmm. and breathy and like ready to fuck at all times. And like when you actually talk to her about anything except for money and marriage, she's like, yeah, I got to put on this front because uh, I got to get <laughs> married because otherwise my life is going to be shit. Right. And I've seen her do that character so many times that like that was the depth I discovered was like, okay, she actually did get to play other characters on screen. Yeah. But she did this so exceptionally well that I never got tired of it's seeing so her do good. it in movie and movie and movie. Yeah. Again. She did so well with like just being a, like a comic actor in this yeah. movie where I don't know. I'm like, I was trying to think of like who would do that well today. Just not necessarily like the blonde bombshell look and feel or whatever, but it's almost like Melissa McCarthy's humor a little bit. I saw translated like subtle facial expressions mm-hmm. and just like this all around goofiness to everything yeah. that she does. It's brilliant. Yeah. What I see is like an exaggeration of what James was just talking about, that like feminine domestic ideal. It's like a heightened version of it. And we have seen that heightened further and further because she was so iconic so like yeah. jane mansfield was supposed to be this like knockoff version of her mm-hmm. and was blown up to this like cartoon like looney tunes version of marilyn monroe by the time she worked with frank tashlin and then after that divine was doing an exaggerated version of jane mansfield yeah and like i'm watching this like okay jane russell is like a real person in this movie yeah like, yeah she's single track minded and just wants to fuck but like that accounts for a lot of humanity yeah uh, <laughs> and like she is like a recognizable human being. And part of her amusement with her friend is like, you are so fucking ridiculous. And like, I'm amused by how like inhuman your schemes are getting right. to get your diamond tiara. And like in Marilyn's mind or in uh, Laura Lee's mind, she's playing the feminine ideal. And I'm watching this exaggerated version of that. And I'm just thinking like, imagine if every woman on the planet actually acted like this all the time and like lived up to the ideal. It would be fucking chaos. Like um. the world would just be complete anarchy if like that did account for like half the population. Yeah. Uh, and I found that very funny. And yeah, a lot of the movies that we watch, people just like sort of like look at her like, oh my God, what is that? Like It's like <laughs> such an exaggerated gender performance that it's it becomes inhuman and like cartoonish. Yeah. And no one can look away, which I guess is the uh, Andrew Dominic thing. Like no one can look away and it kills her. Yeah, but. I was about to say, oh, everything you're saying is like, yeah, that's kind of but she's point. But it's a performance and she's doing it consciously as like a human being and not like just sort of like wandering into it in a daze. Well, and, but again, yeah. being trapped into that, is horrific and there's a difference between weaponizing it and being victimized by it and i think that's what i'm trying to draw the line but maybe there was some gray area where she was a victim of her own weaponization Hmm. so uh i i don't know i know marilyn monroe did not write this movie but there's this scene at the very end like that speaks to that more intelligent than i appear to be like the very last monologue with her and her fiance and her fiance's father and they're kind of talking about the social norms around like beauty and money in terms of relationships between men and women and 
they're accusing her basically of marrying this guy for his money. And she's like, I'm not marrying him for his money. I'm marrying him for your money, speaking to the father. (laughs) And so that's very funny. And then that is followed up by her saying, that's why we have to have his consent, silly. Like, it's baked into the social contract of like, like, this is like old hat shit. Like, this is what humanity was founded on. It's like an exchange of resources, basically. And, like, people are shaming her for wanting to engage in that system and not, you know, marrying for love, even though she she does love him because she's, like, he's the only person that she can be intelligent with. But I just really loved that line of pointing out the hypocrisy of putting any onus on women to be anything other than what has been expected of them from time immemorial. Like, this is part, it's part of marriage. I like when she made the comment of, you know, it's okay for you to date women because they're pretty, but it's wrong for women to date guys because they have money. Like, that hit me because I'm like, I got into, like, the TikTok black hole of, like, sugar babies. Mm -hmm. Obsessed with it. (laughs) And that's their thing is, you can judge me, like, but this guy's dating me and paying for all this shit because I'm pretty. And is it wrong for me to date him for his money? Like, it's all superficial shit. And I'm like, wow, this is so, like progressive yeah well <laughs> I guess, like all these men paying so much money to like eat at their table you know right like, right like they're they have no shame in wanting to yeah. marry or have sex with a beautiful woman and you know times have changed but not drastically i mean we're working towards equality and equity but like if that's the bartering system, then that's the bartering system. And like, don't shame women for working in the system when men are doing the same thing without any shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's playing the game. She's yeah. just playing it very openly. Yeah. Right. It bothers people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think her friend knows that she is, has a good heart and no one else can see that. And yeah. that's kind of what is so great about their dynamic. It's like, she's a good kid, you know? <laughs> uh, and she tries to like bail her out of trouble a few times when like it goes a little overboard. Yeah. right. It's it's ultimately a very sweet movie between the two of them. And when you do watch the like trailers and promotional materials for it, it's all about like this like um bitchy sisterhood between them, right. this like competition that's really not in the film itself yeah. whatsoever. I love that scene where um Dorothy Shaw is talking to her, the private investigator and her love interest and uh-huh. he's like throwing shade at Lorelai Lee and she's like don't you dare. Don't you dare talk about my friend. Yeah. Nobody does that but me. Like, She's really super, setting boundaries. And this is a guy that she wants to bang so right. bad and, yeah. and marry. And she's just like, treat my friend right. <laughs> it's so nice. Running wild, lost control. Running wild, mighty bold. Feeling gay, reckless too. Carefree mind all the time, never blue. Always going, don't know where. Always showing, I don't care. Don't love nobody, it's not worthwhile. All alone, running wild. I want you to think I'm a drinker. I can stop anytime I want to, only. I don't want to, especially when I'm blue. We understand. All the girls drink. It's just that I'm the one that gets caught. Story of my life. 
I always get the fuzzy end of the lollipop. So my Marilyn Monroe pick was Some Like It Hot, which I've never seen, which is crazy because it's supposed to be one of the funniest movies of all time. And it just like has always been on my radar, but this was a good opportunity to finally watch it. And it's from 1959, directed by Billy Wilder, who, you know, very famous director, stars uh, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis as these two sort of down-on-their-luck musicians who happen to see these mobsters assassinate someone and they have to go on the run. And they decide to disguise themselves as part of this all-girl traveling band. And they get on this train and they're hitching a ride to, I think, Miami. And on the train, they meet Marilyn Monroe, who is the lead singer and also ukulele ukulele yeah. player and sugar she plays cane. a so good sugar cane she, sugar me- cane she plays a mean ukulele yeah. i've never seen someone strum the ukulele as fast as she does in this movie anyway as they're in drag there starts to be these relationships forming where tony curtis who looks very good in drag. He looks great. He looks phenomenal. Yeah, he's got those like dark eyelashes that look mm-hmm. like he's already wearing makeup before right. he puts on a dress. Oh you my know? God, gorgeous. But like Jack Lemmon, <laughs> oh, no. not so good. He looks like a clown because the way his lips are, yeah. like, there's always a long. He's got a weird little mouth. Marilyn Monroe uh, demanded that this movie be in color before she yeah, accepted the role. I was going to bring that yeah. up. <laughs> and they did like some screenshots in color and they just look ghastly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, 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 we're... We're doing black yeah, and I get white. It, I get it. <laughs> oh, I was wondering why, because this is the latest film. Yeah, right. right? No, Jack that Lemon threw me just off. Ghoulish, I that think. threw me off too. Yeah, Jack Lemon does not look great, but he has very funny uh, facial expressions throughout yeah. this movie. But the dynamic that kind of presents itself is like Jack Lemon meets the suitor when they get to Miami. This guy who has like the biggest mouth I think I've ever seen. <laughs> In a movie. Watch out, Julia Roberts. Huge, breathy laughs. Yeah. (laughs) But he has like a big mouth, but his lips are so thin. Yeah. That it looks like like those South Park characters, like the Canadians, Mm -hmm. where it's just like almost cut through his whole face. A chasm. (laughs) So he's kind of forming a relationship with this guy who has a bunch of money and they're going out on dates. And on the other hand, Tony Curtis is kind of playing double duty. He's in drag Josephine like Sugarcane's best friend but also moonlighting as this I guess British the accent is <laughs> all over the place and Jack Lemmon keeps making fun of him for it too he's like what is that accent what is it yeah <laughs> and that's like the funny thing with his other characters like the accent is terrible <laughs> and he's trying to present as being this like very kind of bougie guy that mm-hmm. owns a yacht and wears glasses and their relationship has a great arc where Sugarcane tells him early on, like, yeah, I just have this thing with saxophone players and they just do me wrong every time. I really just want to be with a man who wears glasses because he's vulnerable and helpless. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Tony Curtis's character is a saxophone player. Like they are truly probably meant for each other, but he's presenting as her ideal version of manhood and she is also presenting as someone that she's not either. So yeah. a lot of the comedy in this is characters 
presenting as a gender that they're not or being playful with gender and dealing with like gender norms. And then, you know, we reach the climax of the film where the mobsters come back and, you know, the movie's kind of bookended with the mobster stuff, but that's not really what it's about. And then it ends on this kind of iconic scene where they're all in the boat going away. And I was like personally kind of on, not on the fence about the movie. Like I thought the movie was extremely good, but I was like, it's maybe it's not great. There's like a kind of a long route to get to the good stuff. But man, the last scene in this is so iconic. It's a great little button. Yeah. It's a great button. And I love a good ending. And Jack Lemmon finally reveals like, dude, I'm a man. Like (laughs) he takes a wig off and his suitor is like, well, nobody's perfect. (laughs) It just like ends there. Yeah. (laughs) And it just, like you said, puts a perfect button on it. And there's a, the scene prior where Tony Curtis reveals his true identity and kisses Marilyn because she's like giving up on love after, you know, feeling that nobody wants her. Mm-hmm. And and she, she keeps calling herself stupid throughout the movie. But like, this is like her most human, like, yeah, recognizable, like normal person character. Yeah. And like, she says, I'm stupid in the way that probably all of us do it. in that like, kind of self-deprecating way, like got no brains, you know. And that's kind of her final moment at the end, too, where she's like, well, you know. I'm going to stick with you anyway because I'm kind of dumb. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's best for me. I'm just going to do what I always do and fuck the dumb saxophone player. Yeah, and I, I don't know. So I thought the movie, it is very funny. I think I had like a journey with this movie where early on when they do the drag stuff and they're kind of leering at women and lying to women to like come into their bunks and the, like the horniness of it, I was like, well, this is kind of gross. Yeah. And then- when it gets to the third act, when they're in Miami and they're really being playful with the gender and then the way it ends too, I was like, yeah, it's pretty great. Like, and it is like saying something that not a lot of movies from the Hayes code era. I think I was reading that this kind of like ended the Hayes code towards the end of it. Yeah. And it was kind of the final push to like, yeah, let's do away with that. And, I don't know, like even through a modern lens, I thought it was pretty progressive by the end. And like, I felt that too. Yeah. um, That moment, there's a moment where they both start to sort of enjoy what they're doing. Like they're not being pervy about it as they were before. And they're sort of like feeling the characters that they've created and getting comfortable, like being these women. I don't know. And enjoying the company of females and on a friendship level like they sort of are like hey this is kind of cool and then jack lemon's character you know is like oh i might have a fiance like he's I, pumped right. and what are you gonna do for the the honeymoon oh well you know go well, to, go to niagara, right. niagara Falls. <laughs> ah. i i loved my favorite scene with him and his suitor where he comes back from the date and you know they did the maraca dancing or whatever yeah. and like He's secretly behind Tony Curtis's back. He's so ecstatic and like shaking his maracas. Yeah, he had a good time. Just like, oh, I had a really good time. But he can't really say it out loud. I think that stuff comes earlier in the movie than y'all are giving it credit for, though. Like when they get a job offer for an all-girl band and it's yeah. like kind of a prank, Jack Lemon immediately pitches this idea. He like jumps on it. And like <laughs> that is true. Where he's like, "Hey," and he won't drop it. I he keeps like bringing it back up. He's women. like, "Hey, wouldn't it be fun if we did that thing?" And then like, 
they right. they decide on their like fake names and immediately when someone asks what his name was he comes up with like what's actually in his soul is like right. i'm daphne <laughs> no and he doesn't he have a line where he's like i've always felt like a daphne exactly yeah and then yeah. even the pervy stuff like i don't think that negates them like losing themselves in the role yeah it kind of slips into like erotica territory and i don't know some of this is coming from me being like a lifelong like cross-dresser like i just recognize heavy erotica vibes in like that area yeah. of the movie i don't think that takes away from them like losing themselves in the I part guess, i guess the part that felt odd to me on the the train sequence was especially that scene with jack lemon and Marilyn Monroe, where she comes into his bed and he's yeah. like super horny and has a heart on. Like, yeah, I felt like that should have been for Tony Curtis, his character, because Tony Curtis is like the womanizer, the romantic. So, like, there were parts of it like that where I was like, I don't, yeah, quite know, like, if this is the right character for this thing. But by the time they get to Miami, I was like full on board. I agreed with that as I was watching it, because I didn't know how the characters would develop. Like I was really skeeved out by Jack Lemon kind of using the guise of being a woman to get closer to women and to like, in, in a way that was more intimate than they maybe thought it was. Yeah. But it made sense to me that like Jack Lemon is kind of like, he naturally wants to use this to get closer to women because I also just felt like he liked being with the women yeah, he like did. yeah at the like first he uh Marilyn Monroe comes into his bunk and he's mm-hmm. like so excited and then these other women are coming in and he's like no no this is a private sleepover and but then eventually he's like having a ball yeah that you know culminates in him getting gang tickled by like 20 right. blondes yeah whereas <laughs> uh-huh. like and i feel like tony curtis is purely using the drag as a tool to escape from the mobsters like he's actually not interested in exploring this version of himself and in fact like his drag is pretending to be this like bougie man you know which i feel like like i feel like um relationship with marilyn monroe reinforces the idea of gender as a performance because they're performing these roles of like heteronormative masculinity and femininity with wealth that neither of them like adhere to and same with marilyn you know she's like an alcoholic musician and she's trying to present as like being kind of a debutante that she's not and by the end she's like yeah Mm -hmm. whatever i just want to be with a saxophone player she's so real in this like she is like the straight man in a way like okay her sexuality is turned up to like a thousand in this movie she's like her tits are like out in that one see-through dress and like she has kind of a sultriness to her because she's a more recognizable human being and not like an exaggerated feminine ideal. Yeah. And there's like, there were a lot of shots of like her hair is kind of messed Messy, up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. She's a little, I don't want to say like sloppy or whatever, but there was something like very human and real yeah, about it, it. it. She was the most vulnerable in this film than in any other film. Ooh, I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to end on her most vulnerable. One. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I th- her this was the first movie that we watched mm-hmm. and to me it was like very very different from like I don't know that I'd ever really seen her in like in a moving picture before at all like even really a video. 
And I was shocked by how vulnerable and kind of open-hearted she was in this movie. The, okay. This is the last time I'm ever going to bring up Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> but watching Blonde and knowing that during Some Like It Hot, she was like in a bad way. And they had to do, a lot of the scenes had to do like 50 takes for a simple scene because she, you know, was on drugs and depressed. And I know the movie you're referring to where her character is probably the most vulnerable. I guess that's more you meant. That, yeah, I'm sorry. But I, I, I think her actual humanity is on display. Like she seems a little unhinged, broken in a way that like I can see it in the film. Like, and maybe I'm like projecting, but like there's something real about her as a person in this. Yeah. Whereas like the movie you're referring to, it's like her character is more vulnerable. She goes there in that movie in a very vulnerable way, I guess is what I meant. Like the performance is like raw and right. here it's more like relatable. Yeah. Even though she probably was more raw off screen, but what we see is like, she's a real person, you know? Yeah. When, one last thing I wanted to bring up was I talked to my mom about this film and she had watched it. I mean, she was born in like 51. So, but I was talking about what James was mentioning about like what really stuck out to me was the performance of gender on all sides. And I was so afraid that Jack Lemon's character was going to be made into a joke at the end that like his suitor was going to like the big reveal was going to be his suitor pushing him off the boat or something like that. It's yeah. like making a joke of the idea of these two men having any kind of relationship. So the last line of the movie to me was so affirming and like really cinched this as a classic to me. Yeah. And I was talking to my mom about it and she said, well, you know, at the time it was like, it was a joke. Like it's just cross-dressing men are funny. And as I talked to her about it, she she thought, well, maybe it was that for like the mo- like most people, and but then there is the subtext for you to work with if you want to read into it, basically. And that's what I believe. I believe that that stuff is there intentionally, and it is intentionally not demonized. And I think that that's like a really beautiful thing. And I don't think it would be remembered as fondly as it is if it were right that bad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, no, no one can mention Ace Ventura right now without talking about how awful the trans representation <laughs> is, and that's Ace Ventura. Yeah, there's right. no like violence in yeah. any of it. Well, one thing though, I was reading was that that last line, like they wanted to change it. It was just like a placeholder line, oh. and they just like didn't get around to it. I'm glad well, they did. Yeah. yeah, no, which is great. Thank yeah, for being but it, it's not yeah, like exactly they sat there painstakingly, like we got to have this perfect. It was just like, oh, that's a funny line, kind of like an afterthought. And then they were like, yeah, well, whatever, wow. it works. The movie kind of has like a drunken ramshackle spirit to it in a way, like it's got that like Three's Company sitcom plotting where people are just kind of <laughs> figuring it out on the fly, yes. like. What lie can I make next to get by for the next oh, 10 and I, minutes? And I love this of like racing back to the hotel and getting in the bath. Yeah. You know, fully clothed. So I kind of like that the production also had a scrappy, even though it sounded like it was fucking hell to shoot in some ways. Like it feels like they were just kind of like stitching together what they could. And 
I'm saying it's perfect because it's like a very enjoyable comedy, but it's mm-hmm. not perfect like technically. And it would be less fun to watch if it were like every hair in its place. I don't think it's perfect in the sense of like the plotting of it is sort of generic. Like the mob is out to get you. <laughs> right. You got to go. Yeah. Like, okay. But I think that's funny. <laughs> I've only seen a million times. But the heart of it yeah. is like very funny. Yeah. And it has a good spirit. And that's why it's lasted this long. And Tony Curtis rising out of a bubble bath in a full suit, you know? I'll watch that all day. Yeah, this was like, I know it's a Marilyn Monroe movie, but it was like Tony Curtis's time to shine. He played three characters in I don't this think, movie. I don't think she was like the main, I mean, I'm sure she was a box office draw, but like yeah. most of the comedy hinges on the two guys and she's there as like a real person from them to bounce off of. Yeah. Do you think the names of the drag queen, Candy Cane... Like, I think her drag name is spelled the same oh. as Candy Cane. I mean, this was a drag classic. So I, I think, yeah. yeah. And then make the connection until like while we're talking. Outside of the okay. Divine movies and maybe Tootsie, I can't think of more popular drag media than this. Like, this is pretty high up there. Yeah. And so far, we have talked about Marilyn Monroe's most famous movies. Like, she is best known for her comedies. And we, for this episode, watched a couple of her lesser famous stuff which were two noirs. I picked Niagara because it was my biggest blind spot in her career from 1953. It's another Technicolor movie and they really put it to use. It's, it's shot at Niagara Falls at like a honeymoon getaway at this motel called the rainbow cabin. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of just rainbow mist spraying off of the falls (laughs) and it looks so good on film. And Marilyn Monroe also looks incredible on film. I mean, that, that's not a revelatory statement, but right. this was actually the first Marilyn Monroe that I had ever watched. That's amazing. And the very first scene of her in bed with a cigarette, okay. naked. All she's so wearing good. is a bed sheet, a cigarette, and a full mug. Like she's wearing full makeup. <laughs> and yeah. Bed. What an introduction yeah. to Marilyn Monroe. I was like, oh, wow, I get it. And then later <laughs> she's in the shower. Uh, talking to her husband and she leans out of the curtains and again full mug in the shower bright red lipstick (laughs) heavy makeup very funny but yeah she looks great the pop of color of her red lipstick and then later this hot pink dress that she wears to this like yeah yeah just like vividly beautiful um she is playing a femme fatale in this movie maybe a misogynistic trope in that she's just like cucking the fuck out of her husband who is going mad. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's really fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I would describe this as kind of like a noir precursor to like who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Because you have this like one mm, older couple yeah. who has this like really worn in routine where she's just tormenting him and he's like barely putting up with it. And they're like bickering back and forth. And then this younger couple arrives at the motel and is sort of inserted into their bullshit. And there's a little bit of psychosexual stuff where they're kind of trading partners a little bit, but it's all very situational and the movie doesn't push it at all. Like it's kind of timid about that. Um, And this is still firmly in the Hays Code era. So maybe there's like only so much they were allowed to get away with. I do feel like Mr. Cutler 
um, is only interested in shredded wheat. That's a good point. <laughs> in my <laughs> notes, I have the shredded wheat people, shredded wheat. and it's him, his boss, and his boss's wife, yeah. and they freaked I, me out. I was out. thinking, like, is he gonna, like, is Marilyn Monroe gonna, like, have sex with him? And then he was just so interested in shredded wheat. He mentioned that so many times. <laughs> I, I did note that you can see Niagara Falls from the Rainbow Cabin, but I did not note that you can also see the shredded wheat the shredded factory. factory. <laughs> just perfectly framed on the horizon. Right. Yeah, that character, uh, Ray Cutler, like out of all the movies we watched, like I laughed so much at him. <laughs> he's yeah. the goofy. He's, he's like, like a cartoon character that came to life in this movie. He's like, I'd buy that for a dollar in human form. <laughs> I think it's like a um, good argument for why you should cheat on your husband and make him go fucking crazy. Like if the uh, if the cuckold had started off like that guy, <laughs> yeah. like he deserved every bit of yeah. madness bestowed I, upon I him. I wanted him <laughs> to be pushed into the fall. Yeah. Like, the way he <laughs> is so like great. when he's photographing her, he's like, no, further back, further back. Or like, oh no, 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 like you got to get the light. So her chest goes out and she has yeah, like uh, your chest chin. out, like <laughs> profile creeper. So this guy <laughs> is obsessed with shredded wheat uh, breakfast <laughs> products. Yes, and. Uh, his wife, meanwhile, is going through fucking hell, and he <laughs> never drops it. Like, no. <laughs> like, obviously, they should leave this cabin and go home and, like, ditch the honeymoon, but he wants to stay to talk about shredded wheat more with his boss, <laughs> and he just, like, makes her go through more and more. Thing. Well, she's played by Ann Baxter, who was in The Magnificent Ambersons that oh, we wow. talked about last, and... um. Yeah, she's Frank Lloyd Wright's granddaughter. Oh, that's Whoa, incredible. Isn't that cool. wild? That's really cool. Yeah, I went on a little black hole with her because I thought she was great. Yeah, she was great. So her torment is that she is witnessing Marilyn Monroe's crimes. Uh, Marilyn Monroe has a young stud in town that she's having sex with who's not her husband. The newlywed witnesses this. <laughs> and later it becomes apparent that the young stud attempted to kill the cuckold and then he was murdered instead. And she keeps seeing him around um, at first thinking that he's a ghost, but later it just becomes apparent that he like has faked his death. Like the corpse that was discovered was the young studs, not his. And uh, he's just sort of lurking in the shadows waiting to kill Marilyn Monroe at, at his first <laughs> chance. Monroe also gathers this and goes kind of nuts and goes in this like catatonic state in the hospital and is tormented by the sounds of these bells that are like playing her favorite song um, in this like far off church. And then eventually she meets her demise in the church. Um, and it's really beautifully shot, like Hitchcockian scene yeah. that's shot from the bell's perspective, like yeah. shot down and at just them. those shadows. Yeah. yeah. And they have those like red emergency lights. Yeah. yeah. Really beautiful. So good. And to me, that's kind of where the movie ends. Yes. Uh, there's another like 15, 20 minutes where it just drags Don't on and care. on. Yeah. Where like the newlywed gets on the boat with the cuckold and they're like, yeah, continuing to be alone together. And then there's this whole like kind of swashbuckling at sea thing. Like, I love the scene of the tiny little boat going down the waterfall where it was like, yeah, (laughs) yeah, there's some like cute modeling, I guess. It's really neat. I think it drags a little bit in the beginning too, where it's sort of just like a hangout. It's like a hangout movie for the first like half hour. Yeah. When none of the noir actual plot comes up. So it's definitely a little padding. I don't remember what that Siskel and Ebert formula was like a a good movie is like one with three great scenes and no bad ones. Yeah. I think this one kind of qualifies in that metric. There's not like outright bad scenes, but there's a lot of like treading water maybe between some of the great ones. 
in the falls. <laughs> yeah, tre- I'm sorry. <laughs> treading very turbulent water that will yeah. kill you. <laughs> yeah, the um the setting of this movie being in Niagara Falls, and I feel like Niagara Falls is like going on full force in the background a lot with like the sounds and just the presence of it. It like makes this movie feel so intense. Like there's non-intense shit happening, mm-hmm. but just that being there with like the noise and the presence, yeah, it the just rushing. like heightens it up. The most electrified I was was at the party where the angry alcoholic cuckold uh, storms <laughs> out of his dark hotel room and smashes the record that his wife was playing yeah, to torment him. Yeah. And then him and the newlywed are alone together in the hotel. And there's something really charged and like, that's where I wanted the movie to go was like those like intimate, uncomfortable yeah. scenarios. Mm-hmm. And it just wasn't there. Yeah, I think there was something really interesting about their connection like they don't have a sexual connection necessarily but there's this understanding that i kind of interpreted in their situations like they both had the same uneasiness in their relationships and i thought that that was really interesting and it plays in that scene and then also in the scene where they're like like hurtling down niagara falls like they still seem to have some kind of understanding as they're meeting together yeah it's almost like they're the only two living in reality like right. the, her husband's in like straight <laughs> yeah, wheatland and like Marilyn Monroe's just trying to get fucked uh, but the two of them yeah. are like dealing with like yeah. the hard facts of life yeah uh, and that keeps like dra- dragging them together yeah but I don't think that their relationship was interesting enough to like sustain after Marilyn Monroe dies uh-huh I don't know. Yeah, after that happens, I really just didn't care about anything else. But it's her death scene is great. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And you were talking about her getting disheveled in um Some Like It Hot. I was really thrown off by her storming up the stairs like trying to run away from her husband so he won't kill her. Like her perfectly coiffed hair is like out of place in a way that I've never seen it before. Like mm-hmm. you know, we were talking about her as like a a visual symbol and an icon. We are so used to that like Andy Warhol print where like she is just like perfectly in place of this yeah. like pop art object and like seeing her hair actually move like human hair and like get mussy in that like Madonna kind of way. <laughs> yes. I was like, wow, I've just like, like that was electrifying. I was like, wow, I've just never seen that before. Yeah. I took away some really beautiful images from this, but really not much else. Cause I feel like the psychosexual stuff is a little too timid for yeah. what it could have been. Um, I'm actually a lot more interested in the, other noir we picked for this episode Ooh, that would be the noir that i picked and we i think we like said this title like 12 different ways before we started um don't bother to knock from 1952 so this was uh directed by uh roy ward baker who famously directed a night to remember um and one of my favorite horror movies and now the screaming starts which is kind of a, a hammer horror he also did that vampire um vampire lovers one. yeah yes the one right. that we watched. and it's also based on a novel called mischief by uh, charlotte armstrong she did a lot of plays and noir style novels so this film um starts off well and, and the whole thing takes place in this really cool hotel in new york and this is like new york hotel heyday where everything happened like people stayed at the hotels there were like big events happening there's ballrooms there's bars there's lounge singers at the bars like it's where you want it to be so it's insanely busy 
there's a pilot and his name is Jed and he checks into the hotel. And at the same time, his ex-lover who has broken up with him um, and her name is my favorite, Lynn Leslie. She's a lounge singer at the hotel. So she's performing. Her reveal at the bar where she's like commiserating with the bartender and then like the spotlight just sort of shines on her all of a sudden. She turns around and then she's performing for the room. Yeah. That blew me away. When the, um, <laughs> what's the song where it's like, I like chater chips, motor cars and moonlight yeah, yeah, or yeah. something yeah. like that. It was it's so casual. Mad yeah. libs. Lots of, I just kept thinking like, oh my God, there's a song with potato what chips. What doesn't she like? In it? Yeah. <laughs> she's great. Played by Anne Bancroft from uh, Anne Bancroft. Yeah. Mrs. Yes. Robinson fame. Yeah. Yes. So he's, you know, in a depressed state, drinking whiskey um, so he checks into his room. She's performing. And then we meet Eddie, who is the, the elevator operator of the hotel. And his niece arrives. And his niece is Marilyn Monroe. Like, um, So she's she's young. Um, she's got this, you know, big coat on. It's not like you could already tell like this isn't going to be a Marilyn Monroe is sexy in any sense of the word movie. She's really kind of meek. And she's there because he got her a job for the night to babysit um, a couple who's staying at the hotel, their their daughter, Bunny. So there's sort of some anxiety that's present. So you can already tell like, huh, like something's not quite right with her. So she, they go up into the hotel room. They meet the couple and the couple is like, oh, we'll be down in the ballroom. Her husband had to give this like big speech. It's this big party they're invited to. Eddie leaves. Marilyn Monroe is in the hotel room with Bunny. Um, Bunny's not like really an obnoxious kid. Like she's um, sort of just like, you know, read me a story, put me to sleep. Depends on who you ask. Oh, it depends on. <laughs> she's she's a little rotten uh, child later. Um, <laughs> so Marilyn Monroe's character then starts to dig in this woman's shit. And, you know, puts on her earrings, puts on her perfume and her negligee. And across the hotel, like there's a gap in the middle of the hotel. Like normally where like all those, you know, like your window, not window, your air units and everything like that are. And she sees this man across and it's, it's Jed and they kind of make eye contact um, from across the way in their hotel rooms. They call each other. um, Well, he calls her and there's a little flirtation. Eventually he comes over um, brings his bottle of whiskey. Bonnie's been put to bed, of course. And Marilyn Monroe's character, I keep saying Marilyn Monroe, but her name in here Nellie? is... Nellie? Nell. Nell. Oh, like that um, Jodie Foster movie. Just Nell. like that. Just like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she's putting on this persona, very, some like it hot, but a sad version. <laughs> like she becomes this character and she's trying to portray herself as this, you know successful wealthy woman who is very worldly and slowly it starts to unravel and then it just gets batshit but bunny gets up and then bunny kind of starts to talk too much and outs her a little bit and she gets super pissed she even shakes her <laughs> uh almost throws her throws out, her the, out window. the window yeah. She's yeah. Like, oh, it would be so easy to kill you you're so small <laughs> throw her out <laughs> so yeah so the big window scene so there's a really nosy lady who is like a very like a long-term hotel resident um and she witnesses it 
the real villain of the piece in my mind honestly is her she's so nosy <laughs> i know um she comes back later but she then starts to talk to jed and finds out that like he's a pilot and she starts to like her persona unravels where she then is like my boyfriend was a pilot and he died and then we start to learn like you know her boyfriend uh passed away in world war ii and she kind of lost it and there's they even show like close-up scars of like her wrist where she tried to kill herself and then she kind of starts to panic and her anxiety kicks in full fledged and eddie comes up and he's like i got two cokes for us like what is this very bizarre so he brings up some cokes for them to share and she hides jed in the bathroom eddie then eventually opens the door sees jed and then she tries to stop him so she like hits him on the back of the head with this ashtray and then like chaos ensues and she ties up bunny after like telling her she's a little devil she keeps like basically trying to kill people who bother her like bunny yeah anybody who like interrupts her like trying to get back with her quote-unquote boyfriend right she like tries to kill them like just get out of my way and don't like ruin this for me exactly um so she ties up bunny like legs arms and like puts like gags her mouth and then the neighbor comes up to check and see what's going on and then you know, Nail tries to victimize herself as, you know, oh, I don't know who this man is that left Bunny's room like he was here. And then they start questioning her. And then the hotel detective is on the case. <laughs> and at the same time, like, Bunny is able to get the phone off of the hook. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like, I don't know how phones, like, 100% work back in the day. But, like, it immediately goes to, like, the operator at yeah. the hotel for the phone. So she's listening to everything. The hotel detective's already on the loose and on the case. So everything comes to a head and like everyone is in the apartment and she like gets away somehow, goes downstairs, sees razor blades in the store, buys a pair and then tries to, you know, kill herself. And Jed would, this is like the part of the movie that was so surprising to me as well. The big character arc for Jed is the reason he was broken up with by his girlfriend. He's an asshole. He sucks. Is, he's an asshole. He has no empathy. <laughs> like, that's yeah. her big thing is, like, you, you're not empathetic. You can't connect. Like, you suck. And in that moment, like, he, instead of, like, get this crazy woman out of here and, you know, lock her up and throw a straight jacket on her, he's super empathetic towards her, talks her out of killing herself, and um then they discuss like her going back to like the mental institution she was in previously which i don't know i thought the ending would have been like more um cruel i guess Yeah, i was worried they were gonna kill her uh yeah for her crimes like yeah because that's that would be a very haze code thing to do is like this is shoot her in the lobby threatened to kill herself yeah. was lying all this stuff um and it was interesting because apparently marilyn monroe's mother was schizophrenic so there was like men- big mental illness issues in her family where like her her mom was in like a mental institution. So I don't know. It's like, oh, God, this hit so close to home for her is playing this character. And she plays it so well. Um, and probably because of the experiences she's had with her family members. So I think that's where she portrayed it more so like not like the crazy 
character, but with a sense of it was very real. She is acting her ass off in this movie. Yeah, it like, wasn't ugly or gross. Like she's she, raw. She did it tastefully. Yeah, I guess so. What, <laughs> James? <laughs> this movie is kind of bullshit to me. Like the fact that it's all about this dude learning empathy. Like uh-huh. the vibe is just like bitches be crazy. And then at the end, you know, his girlfriend is like, oh, my God, like, you have empathy. Let's get back together. And great. What a journey of the film to, like, use her as a tool for him to learn empathy. So I don't that he see can it that way to- at all. It's really? a two-hander. Like, it's about her and it's about him. The more interesting part is definitely about her. But, like, his part, he gets himself in a really fucked up situation he did not need to be involved in because he uses people and is an asshole. And like him okay. being trapped in that hotel room with her, he inserted himself in that situation selfishly and he gets tormented for it. And you can see him struggling to like get out and ditch her the whole time. And mm-hmm. like, you've seen people try to get laid and take advantage of other people before. Like we've all seen that in our lives. And like this movie is like dealing with that scenario at length in a way that's actually dealing with the psychology of it, where it's like, I don't think him learning empathy is this like last minute turnaround. It's like by the end, he actually feels really sorry for her and like is genuinely trying to help her. And like other people are trying to punitively punish her. And I was heartbroken for her the whole time. And like by the end, I was just like, God, you poor fucking baby. It's almost like he gave her like a sense of like, it's okay to, you know, go through what you're going through and get you the help that you need. It was almost like her community was being built a little bit, even though it was very small. I don't think at any point he was doing it performatively for Anne Bancroft to like come around. At least I didn't see that. I just, I think you're giving his performance way too much credit. I never for a second was like, man, this guy's tormented and what a good I really dude. feel for what he's going through. He keeps through. trying to leave the room and he keeps getting trapped in it because he fucked up so bad. <laughs> like, okay. He's like, he's actually shown the error of his ways, I think, by the situation. He's almost like, shit, what have I done? Like, it's almost like, like he had guilt for what he's ignited and like given into. And I don't know. It's almost like as he's trying to leave while she's having this breakdown at first, I was like, well, that's not right. Maybe you should like do something, but shit. I don't know how to feel about him now. I also don't think this is Marilyn Monroe acting her ass off. I mean, Oh my God. This is her giving the best psycho bitty performance ever performed on screen as like basically a teenager. Yeah. She gives some fabulous, like young mommy dearest energy towards bunny. Yes. That I thought was like, holy shit. Who thought that Marilyn Monroe would ever be like trying to kill a child and talking to a child like they're shit. Okay, Yeah. She tries to kill a child and she ties (laughs) him up, but that's shocking. But I'm saying that is surface level, like Marilyn Monroe at crazy. Whereas like, in some like it hot, that's a true performance. And like, I feel like this is a real lived in person. I didn't feel like that. In this, this is movie. a more heightened, like, this is like Isabella on Johnny in the tunnel and possession, smashing her eggs against the wall. That's not a real person, but it's like this, like transcendent yes. over the top exaggeration of behavior. And it like really like goes beyond humanity for me. And I this guess movie. it didn't transcend 
I don't know. I think it's the best movie we're talking about, except maybe some like it hot. This movie's I, fucking incredible. I'm a big like. I totally disagree. I, pre- <laughs> I appreciate like psycho bitty characters a lot. So I think like if anyone could pull it off, I'm like, oh, bravo! You could do anything. Give this woman an Oscar. You know, I don't know. I value that acting like more than any other type of like acting. Just being unhinged. A woman and hate kids a little bit this would be a nothing movie in a lesser actor's hands like she she makes this movie as great as it is the only other actress that i think could have done this is elizabeth taylor she also would have killed it yeah because that's like her character type she plays a lot yeah i am more in james's camp okay as far as like so i think that she did a great job but i just have like a huge problem with like the suicidal woman trope Mm -hmm. and how like that is the emblem of mental illness basically and it's like it falls back into this fervent psychosis and i i can see the arc of his character two ways like he wants to be with this woman that he loves or thinks he loves and then he like goes to see marilyn monroe he thinks she's gonna be this like hot beautiful woman he's kind of like fooled by the performance that she's giving to herself for self-assurance and then he learns how to be empathetic like his reward at the end of the movie is like his relationship with this woman like that that is probably won't last very long right (laughs) right that that was it's like that's this big revelatory moment like he's with her with marilyn monroe saying like no we're gonna get you the help you need and his love interest is like oh my God, I didn't know that you could be a kind person. Like that just felt, uh, but I can also see that as like getting an audience member to empathize with this Mm -hmm. woman. Like he is the straight man. And by like, because you're already kind kind of invested in his character growth, you can see Marilyn Monroe, who is this disturbed woman as a real person. Like, I can see the value in that, but I, I don't know. I just have, like, a really negative reaction towards the suicidal women, especially just because of, like, a lost love. Like, that that personally okay. does not work for me. And showing her, like, cut marks, I hate when any movie does that because you can talk about suicide and, like, instead of just, like, Showing it for shock value. I think there's a huge difference between doing that now versus doing that in the fucking early yeah. 50s. Like, that, I couldn't that believe hard. they showed it. Yeah. It goes yeah. hard. I yeah. Mean, like, that, I guess me and Brittany are kind of reacting to this less as like really complex, like well thought out drama and more as like an exploitation picture. And like by I those standards, it's incredible. It. Yeah. You, you didn't find that to be a shocking image for like this type of movie at this time? Like, I think in that context, the fact that they showed that is pretty brazen. The, the only shocking, I mean, I thought it was shocking when she almost pushes Bunny out the Very window. Very shocking. Yeah. That right. was the point that where I like transcended. But no, for a lot of the movie, her character that she was given is just like act crazy and deranged, and like you're having a psychotic break. And hey, this other actor act like you want to leave. And that's the tension for most of the movie. And then there we go. I mean, that isn't like subversive or shocking or transcendental to me. It's just like a 
kind of mediocre genre film. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's. I just see it as like this melodramatic, somewhat like over exaggerate, not over exaggerated, but performance from her. I I don't know. Like I yeah. kind of took this as there are beautiful parts to it, but I would like almost like not put this with mommy dearest but almost like a tier below that i love it's a little more serious i love psychotic women on screen like i love watching <laughs> joan crawford wield an axe and like chop people's heads right. off liz taylor's virginia wolf just like yeah people who are losing it a yeah. Little. yeah i i think i mean i might just not have a good context for the time but i did wish that it had gone a little fr- like I don't know. I wish the, that her uh, uncle had died, you know, or se- like one step. Yeah. If it was made in the 60s, the there would have been actual murder right. in the film. But yeah, for that, I mean, it was, this was probably psycho what for they sure. could, Right. Yeah. Like this is probably what they could do for the time that they had. <laughs> and showing him getting violently beaten with a heavy right. ashtray was pretty fucking sick. <laughs> he was like his head was bleeding. And then later the. <laughs> no, um, don't call a doctor. It's cool. <laughs> and then later the pilot throwing her on the ground like she takes like a wrestling yeah. bump in this that's like really concerning yeah and she shook the shit out of a kid oh my god <laughs> yeah my mouth was agape through most of this movie yeah. i watched it about three times total honestly <laughs> oh my god. it's 76 minutes it's easy to it's just pretty throw short. on yeah. yeah yeah and i think it just was giving me everything i wanted out of niagara and wasn't getting which was like actually digging into the psychological tension between these characters Instead of just sort of like hinting at it by positioning them in these like uncomfortable rooms. Like this is like if in Niagara, that guy smashed the record. They went into the hotel room alone while their their own spouses were outside and then spent the next hundred minutes like arguing. It like really dug into like the fucked up uncomfortable relationship at the core of it in a way that like I found so satisfying. Yeah. And I will say, I do think the way that the tension was built throughout the movie was really interesting like his kind of unawareness of her situation i mean i do think her performance of this rich woman is really tragic and Mm -hmm. interesting and then their like collision and even that that scene where they kind of see each other for the first time through the windows is like really interesting and erotic so I, I don't know. I really liked the foundations and I just like, I don't know. It might just be a me personally thing. I just can't. I mean, like, that's a legit complaint. This is yeah. not ethically made <laughs> or written. Like, yeah. yeah, it's not like an ethical representation of like mental illness. Yeah. It had me questioning like how I am as a person and my taste. <laughs> I don't know. I, I got everything I wanted out of this episode, out of this one movie. <laughs> I think we picked like four really strong Marilyn Monroe movies yeah. from her like filmography. I liked them all. There's not one that I did not enjoy. I think like I rated all these the same after I watched them. But I don't know. I liked Don't Bother and Knock a lot. And I was blown away by Gentlemen uh, Prefer Blondes. Like that blew me away. And there are totally. no blondes in this room, I'm realizing. <laughs> exactly. This is like harsh brunette uh, <laughs> bias in this room. <laughs> and as much as I was like ragging on blonde earlier, the fact that like all four of these movies get like their own spotlight in that, I think is a pretty good yeah. implication yeah. that we picked well, right? Yeah, I think uh, so. I think the only one they might mention in that one that we didn't cover is Seven Year Itch. And we did not do that on purpose. Like we were like planning the episode around the movie, really. 
Right. Because most of us hadn't seen it at the time we were picking movies. So anyway, it worked out well. Yeah. If nothing else, I am thankful for Blonde for like, I think it really did push me to watch, to Mm. want to watch Marilyn Monroe movies. And like, I'm so glad that I discovered her for myself at the time, uh, at at this time, because now I have all the time in the world to watch as many Marilyn Monroe movies as I want. It's very special. Yeah. I guess my question at this point, since I'm going to make y'all talk about Oscars stuff soon, Mm -hmm. like, Blonde was nominated for Best Leading Actor, Actress for um, Ana de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. How do we feel about that nomination? I I guess my my thing is, like, the movie we just talked about, you liked it because it was so shocking. It showed the cut marks. But Blonde is, like, too exploitative. No, I just think one was done well and one was done poorly. And, like, I think that everything that could have been revealed to me about Marilyn Monroe in Blonde was done so much better and more concisely and more informatively and don't bother to knock in, like, half the time. Yeah, I don't think so. I think there are similar performances, though, and I think the nomination is for, like, basically going through an ordeal uh, in the same yeah. way, like putting herself through that. Well, I guess that's really the question. Like, because her performance does have some nuance, but a lot of kinda it kind of one note. It's kind of one note. But I don't know. There's been a lot of great performances with actresses just being put through the ringer, like Bjork and Dancer in the Dark, or I don't know. Rebecca it, Hall last year for Resurrection. Yeah. Any number of examples. Like, so I don't know. I, I, I don't hate it. I thought she was really good in it. So. I just don't know why I didn't like it. Like, I think I was, I don't know if it was because I was bored by it. Cause like, I like that movie, um, the Tina Turner biopic. And that pretty much like shows. That one's uh, rough for me. It's rough and like yeah. shows a lot of her abuse. But I'm like, why did I love that movie? But I just didn't vibe with this one. I don't fucking know. This that. was more like art house bullshit that I love. Yeah. And the score by Nick Cave was really good. And it's just so poetic and beautiful to look at. And she's beautiful in it. And like I said, it gets lynchy in at the last hour. And I love that. I guess I would be open to like any nominations for that movie because the Oscars don't really matter that much. It's a great talking point, but like, it's not like a really arbiter of taste in the way that maybe it thinks it is. But like if it were for best picture, best director, best writing, best adaptation, I I might like be like, what the fuck? (laughs) But you know, Ana de Armas, you know, she put in the work. I can't be mad at that. It seemed like it was like really hard to shoot and like put herself in that headspace for such a long time. And just those few moments where Norma Jean is trying to break through of the Marilyn, the blonde persona, those couple moments are really some genuinely like great acting. Maybe our split is like art house bullshit versus like grindhouse sleaze. Like (laughs) I do, I do have like a really deep affection for like vintage exploitation films. Um, not that you don't, but you know, I waver a little bit when it comes to the, like the Lynchian end of like art house abstraction. But I think the Marilyn Monroe movies that I liked the most were gentlemen prefer blondes on the one hand, where it's like all kind of artifice, what we expect from a Marilyn Monroe picture. And she does it beautifully with humor. And, and then on the other hand, it's kind of some like it hot where it's the same deal, but like felt more like a real lived in human performance and the don't 
worry about not, don't, don't bother knock, to not, don't bad bother title. Don't worry about knocking darling. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't worry about, about the title. It was, don't it worry was, about the title of this movie. It was, it was some like gray area where it should be her most like riveting, hard hitting cutthroat performance. And it was just like play a crazy person and it didn't feel human to me. I do think it felt human, but I did not love the movie. <laughs> <There it goes. laughs> That's what else. Yeah. I thought, I, I don't know. I, I thought she was very human in all of her movies. Really, Niagara was the one where I felt the most disconnected from her as a human being. I think that she is more of a person than Blonde portrayed her as. And I'm well, very glad. of course. Yeah. That's the point. But... I'm glad we all got to dabble in Monroe. Yeah. Yes. And we'll be talking about Jane Mansfield soon for movie of the month. So this is a great primer for me. Oh, too. Yeah. perfect. Well, next episode, we're going to talk about a Canadian icon instead of an American one. We're going to talk about John Candy. Uh, oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. Amazing. I love, love John Candy movies. We're doing Delirious from the early 90s. Ugh, Do you remember are, that one? Yes. He's like a soap opera writer who like writes himself into the soap opera mm-hmm. he's yes. working on. I haven't seen it since I was a kid and used to play on TV all the time, so I'm very excited to go back to it. That's a good one. Um, also, Nothing But Trouble is like streaming on HBO Max, and I've watched it like five times. It would be so bad. It's I'm, fabulous. I'm still kind of fascinated His character is amazing in that yeah. movie. And then we'll come back with more Oscars talk, because it's a disease that I have. <laughs> I you got the Oscar fever. Stop spreading it to other people. Yeah. My fever is not breaking for another few weeks. <laughs> talk to you all then. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. The French are glad to die for love. They delight in fighting duels. But I prefer a man who lives and gives expensive jewels. A kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. A kiss may be grand, but won't pay the rental on your humble flat, or help you at the automat. Men grow cold as girls grow old, and we all lose our charms in the end. Square cut or pear shape These rocks don't lose their shape Diamonds are a girl's best friend